The Christian Counseling Collaborative is a ministry that was birthed here at ACAC, largely through the efforts of one of our staff, Priscilla Ortlip, along with Tom Laird and others. And I believe last year they saw over 400 individuals providing biblically-based, wise counsel to help them navigate some of the troubled areas of their lives. So when you think of it, pray for this very, very vibrant ministry. Well, today I'm going to change things up just a little bit. I'm going to preach two messages. Now, combined, they will not be any longer than one, so now you can breathe out. (laughs) But I'm going to preach a very short message that's designed to set the stage for the second message. Now, last weekend, while I was on vacation, Pastor John reminded us that following Jesus places us squarely in the middle of an armed conflict, the conflict between God's eternal kingdom and Satan's kingdom of darkness. And he went on to remind us that awareness of that conflict will shed light on some of our struggles and shape our responses to those struggles. Three weeks ago, I highlighted some of the realities involved with this spiritual conflict. I noted that Satan knows he can't forcibly remove us from the ranks of God's kingdom or force us to change our allegiance. So his attacks against us are aimed at limiting our influence on those who are still trapped within his ranks. And toward that end, he seeks to do two things. He seeks to erode our understanding of God's truth and then our application of God's truth. And as I said three weeks ago, his most effective weapons are not frontal assaults against the existence of God. His most effective weapons are subtle, soft-edged seductions that unfold within the church itself. And that's why we should never be surprised and should never be disillusioned when we discover evil within ourselves or when we find it within the ranks of the church. And I say that because even though we have been rescued from our former addiction to sin, we still have to work our recovery every day. And we have to work our recovery in a broken world where we're surrounded by sin and when we are under or where we are under relentless attack by the chief promoter of sin. I put it this way in the language of addiction to help you get a handle on what I'm talking about. A believer pursuing holiness in this currently unholy world is like a former crack addict working their recovery inside a crack house (laughs) while being relentlessly ridiculed by the addicted and continually seduced by their former dealer. (laughs) I think that's an apt and fair comparison. And that's why after 40 years of pastoral ministry, I am not disillusioned in the least by the frequent failures of God's people. Quite the contrary, I am amazed and humbled by the frequencies of our success. 
And the situation in which we find ourselves working our recovery also explains why God literally calls us to regular attendance at recovery meetings like this. Because showing up once or twice a month will not suffice when Satan shows up every morning. And yet, as I shared with you several weeks ago, in the United States, the average follower of Jesus now attends worship twice a month. Despite the fact that God's Word says the closer we get to the second coming of Christ, the more important it will be to assemble together regularly. We're doing just the opposite of what Jesus called us to do. And thus ends the first short sermon. <laughs> and that was short, wasn't it? See? Now, that sets the stage for us to look at our next installment of the book of Acts. We're spending this year studying that New Testament book. And today's account, like some of the accounts we've looked at previously, sheds light on one of those subtle seductions that is highly effective. And it's effective because it always announces itself as a crusade for God's glory and the defense of sound teaching and doctrinal purity. We watch it unfold in chapter 15. And the narrative there includes the response to this development from the apostle Peter. Here's what he said in verses 10 and 11. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. I've entitled this week's teaching, Making God in Our Image. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Father God, I pray today that your spirit would grant me a fresh infilling for preaching and teaching your word. Set a guard upon my lips. Don't let me add to your truth. Don't let me subtract from your truth. And Spirit of the living God, we all need a fresh infilling that we might understand and apply your truth. That is the point of the exercise. And so we all ask for fresh infilling from your Spirit for the moments that lie before us. When we encounter the living God through his living, never-changing word and work our recovery and grow in holiness. And for all these good gifts, we will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And as we study God's Word together today, may the Lord be with you. For the reasons I've already mentioned in the first sermon, a Spirit-led church is never a problem-free zone. It's a place where God's Spirit teaches us how to break free of our problems. And Acts 15 illustrates one major problem we face repeatedly in the church. Our tendency to make God in our own image and then 
make clones of ourselves rather than disciples of Christ. And today I want to consider why and how that happens and how it unfolds. Now Acts 15 reminds us that God's people can get off the rails even when things are going exceptionally well. And as this chapter opens, things were going exceptionally well. The very thing God desired from eternity past, the very thing for which Jesus suffered and died, the very thing that was designed to bring God great joy was coming to pass. God's kingdom was spreading to the nations. Gentiles were joining the ranks of God's recovery movement. But not everybody was rejoicing over that success. The apostles were. They got on their old school groove. They broke out cool in the gang, and they began dancing to celebrate good times. Come on. While they were dancing to cool in the gang, a gang from Judah came up and said, Stop the music. This isn't what it's cracked up to be. This isn't all good. There's a major problem here. And they began teaching these new Gentile converts that they needed to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses before they could be truly saved. Now, I'm sure these guys were well-intended. There's no hint otherwise. But though well-intended, they were mistaken. Have you ever been well-intended but wrong? And if you're married and doubt that you've ever been that, (laughs) talk to your spouse and actually listen. You see, their understanding of God's truth was flawed. And a flawed understanding of God's truth is just as dangerous as flat-out error, maybe more dangerous. They had made a fatal mistake. They had mistaken the notion of what it means to be chosen by God. And as believers following Christ today, we are referred to in Scripture as the chosen of God. Well, like the church today, the Jewish people were chosen. They were chosen for special service, not for special acceptance. And there's a huge difference. God had raised them up to be the first recipients of, the guardians of, and the first messengers of his liberating truth for all of humanity, not just for their countrymen. But as the subtle seducer worked his magic over many generations, the lines between special service and special acceptance had blurred. And the Jews had come to the conviction that God had called them not to be a blessing to all of humanity, but God had called them because they were a cut above the rest of humanity. The call to special service had morphed into a conviction of special status. God loves us more than them. And that, in turn, led them to believe, it's a logical conclusion, that God could only bless people who became them, 
who became like them, who essentially became Jewish. And they had fallen prey to a subtle temptation that is common to us all. As I stated earlier, God made us in his image, and we often return the favor. We create and embrace an image of God that bears a striking resemblance to ourselves. Now, there are a host of reasons why we do that, pride being one of the foremost. But in addition, I suspect we're prone to do that because once we make God in our image, then that image of God validates us just as we are. It doesn't require humility, it doesn't require confession, it doesn't require repentance, and it doesn't require change. And once we go there, then we begin to define faithfulness to God as staying proudly true to ourselves rather than becoming humbly true to God. And if you're listening in this culture... There is great emphasis upon being true to what you assume is your identity versus humbly seeking God's intended identity for you. Big difference. Now, once we start down that path, there's another inevitable result. We begin to see God as the supreme, all-powerful protector of the things that we cherish, be it our ethnicity, our nationality, our culture, our politics, our morality, our economics, our sexual practices, our religious practices, or our lifestyle. And this process explains why some who confess Jesus as Lord equate faithfulness to God with support of their nation state, their chosen political party, their economic theories, or their social agenda. It's also why some defend and support what are clearly sinful positions and sinful practices by suggesting, and I hear this often in social media, the Jesus I serve would never condemn anyone. Despite the fact that Jesus condemned many folks and promised that in the great judgment he would say to many, Depart from me, I never knew you. When people say, the God I serve, the Jesus I follow, would never condemn anyone, they have arrived at the station, they have recreated Jesus in their own image. Now, barring humble repentance, which never comes easily, the eventual outcome of this progression is belief in a God who looks like you, agrees with you, and protects your way of life. And from there, it's just one small step to the belief 
that if other people are going to know Jesus and be blessed by Jesus, they need to look like you. And that's exactly what the apostles encountered in this story. In short, once we see God as an extension of ourselves, here's what we do. We establish the boundaries of faith. We take it upon ourselves to determine who's really in and who's out, even though those decisions are way above our pay grade. And that explains why some of the Jewish believers in Judah, and especially those who had been saved out of Phariseeism, found it almost impossible to believe that Gentiles could actually be their brothers and sisters, that Gentiles could enter God's kingdom without embracing circumcision and the law of Moses. In a very real sense, these folks from Judah had come to the conclusion that you can't come to Mount Calvary unless you come by way of Mount Sinai. You have to become Jewish in order to become a follower of Jesus. Now, in this particular incident, Paul's opponents were not pagans. They were his brothers and sisters. They were genuine followers of Jesus. Nothing calls their belief into question. But old habits die hard. And as I'm sure you've learned, they rarely disappear overnight. So the church had a problem, and it was a big problem because it threatened to split the church into a Jewish church and a Gentile church, which would really be no church at all. So this problem had to be resolved quickly. So what did they do? They called a council. And there Paul and Barnabas shared their observations, what they had seen God doing among Gentile people. But that only served to fuel the debate. Because once people have their mind made up, evidence becomes a basis for argument rather than change. So they convened a larger council made up of elders and apostles. And I want you to notice just elders and apostles, not all believers. And it's a subtle reminder embedded in this story that while all believers are equal and all believers are gifted, not all are equally gifted to lead. God is no respecter of persons. The ground is level at the foot of Christ cross. God doesn't love one believer more than another. God doesn't have his favorites. He does have his intimates, but that's up to us, not up to him. But heaven is not a democracy. It's a benevolent monarchy. God doesn't determine truth by counting hands or hanging chads. God's kingdom is not a democracy, and neither is God's church. Some people bristle at the idea that a leader in the church has some kind of authority over them, even though Scripture says, be in submission to those who are over you in the Lord. This is a topic for a different sermon, but democracy has a very polluting effect upon biblical understanding. 
In democracy, everybody has a vote, and direction is determined by counting hands. In the kingdom of God, we follow God's instructions. We have a benevolent, all-wise king. Now, the fact that God appoints some to be leaders doesn't mean they're special. It means they're appointed for special service, not for special status, and not for special acceptance. It means they bear a heavier burden and face a stricter judgment. And that's the knowledge I live with every day. Now, as one of the leaders in the early church appointed by God, not by a show of hands, Peter was the first to speak. And he reminded his fellow Jews that in their zeal to make others, the Gentiles, like themselves, they had forgotten one very important thing. None of them had ever found holiness by attempting to keep the law of Moses. They were asking the Gentiles to do what they had never done themselves. You see, when we make God in our image, we are tempted to require of others Things that haven't worked for us. Hashtag insanity. (laughs) You see, the law never made any Jew holy because the law of God was never meant to make anybody holy. In medical terms, the law was a spiritual thermometer made to make us aware, given to make us aware that we have a problem and that only God can fix that problem by virtue of his grace and his power. The law was a diagnostic tool. It was not cure. So Gentiles who had never practiced the law were no more in jeopardy before God than a Jew who had practiced the law from birth. To use another analogy, if two people attempt to jump a 15-foot chasm and one jumps five feet and the other jumps ten feet, doesn't matter, the result is the same. Both fall short. And Paul said, hey, both Jews and Gentiles need, or Peter, excuse me, both Jews and Gentiles need grace. Peter went on to remind his audience that God had given the Gentiles the Holy Spirit. On that basis alone, They couldn't be excluded, and they shouldn't be questioned. Then James added his respected voice to the mix, and soon, thankfully, the matter was settled. The crisis was averted. But one thing was asked of those Gentile believers. They were asked to show sensitivity to their Jewish brothers and sisters by refraining from certain practices that were highly, highly offensive to the Jews. And they were asked that because even though they were free in Jesus, spiritual liberty is not a license for insensitivity or superiority. Love must always outweigh liberty. And I'm stressing that because just as the Jews demanded conformity to their laws, I see some believers today demanding conformity to their liberties. If you don't 
feel the liberty to do some of the things they feel they have the liberty to do, they look down on your level of commitment to Christ. They use their liberty as a club. And little do they know they are guilty of the same thinking as these Judaizers, Judaizers who threw a monkey in the wrench of the early church. When people do that, it indicates they are shaping their image of God and their image of faith according to their deficient idea of freedom rather than letting God shape their idea of freedom. And often, like their ancient predecessors, these folks love debate. They love to get on social media and debate what freedom in Christ means, never speaking it and couching it in terms of sensitivity or recognizing their sense of smug superiority. And when you see smug superiority, you are not seeing the work of God's Spirit. News of the council's decision was eagerly anticipated. So it was quickly sent back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. But the church was wise enough to know those who opposed the inclusion of Gentiles would be inclined to doubt Paul and Barnabas' report because everybody knew their pro-Gentile stance. So the church wisely sent some corroborating witnesses from Jerusalem, Judas and Silas. And they did that because in addition to making God in our own image, here's another one of our nasty habits. Satan seduces us to make others in our own image. And when we make others in our own image, we project upon them our own evils and our own evil inclinations and then we begin to entertain suspicion and we begin to hurl accusation. You see, when you say of somebody perhaps in a position of leadership, for example, well, I'm sure that he or she are just full of themselves and, and, and they're doing this because they love power. What you're really saying is, if you were in that position, you would be full of yourself and love power. See, when you point a finger at somebody else, remember there are three fingers pointing back at you. We project unto others what we fear in ourselves. So if you tell yourself anybody who's wealthy must be spiritually compromised, it's because you know if you were wealthy, you would be spiritually compromised. If you assume that they will never tell you the truth, it's because you know if you were in their place, you probably wouldn't tell the truth. See, we're not only to make God in our image, we need to stop making other people in our image. Stop acting as if everybody was like you. And quit making your sins somebody else's sins. And stop pointing that finger. Boy, if people stop that, a lot of social media would disappear, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, the Jerusalem Council and the crisis it averted offers us some valuable, relevant warnings and lessons. 
It warns us we must resist the temptation to make God an extension of ourselves. That's idolatry, and it's blasphemy. And we must resist the temptation to make our experience the standard for other believers. It warns us that we must never require of our brothers and sisters more than God requires. And we must not build fences where God has built bridges. And we must not make our traditions more important than the truth they were designed to defend. It teaches us we should never ask others to be our clones if they want to be Jesus' disciples. It teaches us grace is both a tremendous gift and a heavy responsibility. And those who receive grace must pass it on rather than limit it in the lives of others. And it teaches us that the church is not a democracy based on equal rights, but a spirit-birthed hierarchy based on differing responsibilities. But perhaps the foremost lesson goes often overlooked because it's as subtle as the temptation it was intended to combat. Perhaps the main lesson of this story is this. If we love our own concept of God and our own experience of God more than God's truth, we end up loving ourselves more than God and more than others. Let me say that again. If we love our concept of God and our own experience of God more than God's unchanging truth, we will end up loving ourselves more than we love God and more than we love others. And thus ends the second sermon. Let's pray together. Father God, we're all tempted to make you in our image, to make you an extension of our likes and our dislikes and our preferences and our insecurities and our pride and on and on and on and on and on. What happened long ago in Antioch, in Jerusalem, is still happening in Pittsburgh and anywhere where the name of Christ is named. So, Father, lead us not into this temptation, but deliver us from this evil. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a final word. This week I went to Half Price Book on McKnight Road. My granddaughter's going to camp today, and she wanted a paperback novel because they don't allow electronics at camp. Hallelujah. Well, I didn't find the novel she wanted, but I found something else, and I just had to have it for this sermon. It was only $5.99, plus a mandatory contribution to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. For $5.99 plus tax, I was able to secure a bendable, poseable Jesus of Nazareth. Not any Jesus, because Jesus was a common name. Jesus of Nazareth. This is the one that appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And I just had to have this because I thought, this is the kind of Jesus that we often want. One that we can bend to our will. 
one that we can pose so that he doesn't oppose what we want to do anyhow. And then I noted down in the right-hand corner, it says it's for ages three and up. And I thought, that's about right. We, we, start, we start changing our image of God at age three, and up could be 70 years, 80 years. There's no limit to the up other than our last breath. So if you don't remember anything else from this weekend... Remember the bendable, poseable Jesus? <laughs> and they have a few more left if you've just got to have one. And while you're laughing, be reminded that we all have a nasty habit of making God in our own image. God bless you.